Welcome to the White Coats on Call podcast series brought to you by the Medical Society of Virginia Political Action Committee. These first four episodes of the podcast series will share the most important issues facing physicians for the 2018 General Assembly session. Each episode features an interview with a key Virginia physician legislator. I'm Sarah Rose Wells, Assistant Director of Government Affairs, and you're listening to episode four of the series featuring Delegate Chris Stolle. Good morning, listeners and everyone out there. Um, my name is Ralston King. I'm the Assistant Vice President of Government Affairs at the Medical Society of Virginia. I'm here with Delegate and Dr. Chris Stolle. Uh, Dr. Stolle represents the 83rd District, uh, which uh, encompasses parts of the city of Norfolk and the city of Virginia Beach. Uh, Dr. Stolle uh, has been a member of the General Assembly and House Delegate since 2010, uh, been, a, been a strong supporter of uh, the physician community, uh, he is an OBGYN and uh, hospital administrator down at Riverside. He's been very active in so many committees and, um, again, supportive of the physician community under the HWI Health Committee on the House side, uh, also the Appropriations or Money Committee on the House side, and then has been active in the Certificate of Public Need Work Group and Joint Commission on Healthcare. So thank you, Dr. Solly, for visiting with us this morning. Um, if you don't mind, I'd like to just ask you um, a, a series of questions, and, and I'll first begin just with organized medicine and kind of how you got involved uh, with your local component or medical society uh, uh, back in the day and, and how that kind of came about and then how that maybe led to, to you serving in public office. Rawson, uh, thanks so much for uh, having me, inviting me to speak to this podcast. I think that it's uh, so important to uh, – uh, for physicians to get engaged and for physicians to know what's going on at the at the state level. Um, I got involved in, in uh, physician leadership, really, on medical issues um, from my time in the Navy. I uh, retired from the Navy after 24 years um, in 2005, and, and as part of the Navy career, I was first, uh, first a submariner and served as a, a nuclear engineer um, on a submarine for seven years and then went to med school and spent the rest of my time uh, in the Navy as a, as a Navy physician. And uh, within the Navy, um, you, you progress up on increasing leadership roles, and those roles include with them um, uh, administrative as well as leadership roles. Uh, when I retired uh, and got out in the civilian community, I felt that it was really important to keep on uh, that track of having um, physicians in leadership roles trying to um, not only lead but also help direct how medicine should be practiced um, within the state. And so I saw MSV as a natural step um, that, that uh, physicians would take in, in getting together and figuring out how medicine should be provided uh, here uh, in the state of Virginia. That's excellent. We appreciate that. And um, you've been uh, very active uh, for many years. And um your time has been um, uh, valuable uh, in public office and within MSB. If I can, I'd like to just kind of uh, switch over to the election results and, and those happening back in, in November. And um, unfortunately, uh, we lost a, 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 a physician in the General Assembly and Delegate John O'Bannon. Um, you were uh, uh, successful in returning to the General Assembly. Uh, the House has certainly changed uh, quite a bit in terms of more Democrats have picked up uh, seats. Uh, and now we have a physician who will be governor. A lot of things are different uh, before the election day. Um, and I'd, 
I think the, the medical community really interested on what your take is on how that election uh, results uh, came about and um, what you see for the future uh, within the General Assembly. Yeah, I, uh, I don't think there's any doubt that uh, this was a, a wave election. I think that it was a wave election, um, very much a pushback on some of the things that have been going on in Washington, not just for the last year, but for several years. And I think it, it spoke to the frustration of the voters um, uh, of the inability of government to take in and resolve some basic issues um, that we're, we're confronted with. And if we look at some of the folks who won't be returning, who were just absolute advocates um, for the state of Virginia and, and for medicine, um, these are some really significant losses to the state. Um, these weren't these weren't partisans. These were people who were policy experts. And I look at, at John O'Bannon, and I, I can't think of a person in the state of Virginia who understands all the different aspects of medicine and the practice of medicine in the state of Virginia, as John O'Bannon does. And so you, you look at sort of those results and go, this wasn't really um, a merit-based um, decision, This and, and, and it wasn't really a – a decision based on facts and figures and, and logic. It was an emotional response, I think, to things that are going on. And unfortunately, I think we're going to pay a price for um, some of that because of uh, some of the um, wisdom that that we're losing um, uh, in the General Assembly uh, moving forward. Um, having said that, I think this is a statement that um, voters uh, expect their government to be responsive. Um, to hear what their issues are and to try and resolve those issues. And um, I, I think we're at a really um, uh, interesting point. I think we're at a critical point um, for the state, uh, closely divided as we are. Uh, will we devolve into politics like Washington, where um, the different sides don't even talk to each other? Or are we going to continue along the Virginia path where – um, reasonable people sit down at a table and come up with um, a reasonable compromise to move forward. And and we'll see. I think we'll start to see here really within uh, the next two weeks of, of which path we're going to go down. And certainly um, it is my hope that uh, we'll be able to uh, see an opportunity for the sides to get together, have a meaningful discussion on some of these issues, and trying to find ways to solve those problems uh, in a bipartisan way rather than in a, a partisan manner. Um, and speaking of that, uh, regarding uh, bipartisan <clears throat> relationships, what's been your relationship with Dr. Ralph Northam? Uh, will be inaugurated next week. And how do you envision uh, you all being able to work together as, as both physician colleagues but of opposite political parties? Yeah, I, I think um, I think there comes a time when you stop looking at the political parties and you start to look at how we solve problems. And certainly, when we're in elections and you're out campaigning and and um, trying to get people's support, um, um, politics is very important, and having the support of political parties is very important. When it comes down to solving problems, you really have to take and put that partisan chip on the back burner. Uh, I think Ralph is, is very, very capable of doing that. 
I think the uh, governor-elect wants to take and um, uh, find solutions, uh, as do members of the General Assembly want to find solutions. And so I I think that this is a uh, actually a great opportunity for us to really address and solve some of the problems that, uh, that the state may have. Um, speaking to some of those problems, um, I'll kind of flush right into to Medicaid, uh, Medicaid expansion. Um, as you know, uh, Governor McAuliffe put in the provider assessment tax in his budget uh, uh, back in December. And, um, you know, I think many physician colleagues are interested in knowing what is the direction for uh, reforming Medicaid, for solving for expansion? Is there an answer? And, and really kind of what's your viewpoint on the next steps, knowing that um, uh, there is uh, much more uh, bipartisanship most likely going to be taking place in the General Assembly for the future? Yeah, I think that's a, a great um, question. I think that there's an incredible amount of uncertainty out um, uh, in the nation right now, not just in the Commonwealth. There's certainly a lot of uncertainty coming from uh, Washington, D.C. and I think that we have to be really careful in how we approach this so that we're not um, solving the problem for one portion of our population um, while creating an even bigger problem for another portion of our population. And, and I think that's sort of what we've seen with the ACA, um, whereas there certainly have been an increased number of people nationwide receiving um, health insurance through Medicaid, um, the access to medical care um, for many middle-class Americans has um, uh, has been damaged um, with the increasing coinsurance and, and deductibles and co-pays associated with it. We're seeing um, individuals, um, middle-class individuals who can no longer afford their, um, their premiums. We've seen on the federal exchanges um, here in Hampton Roads, um, uh, premiums going up as much as 60% um, on some of these uh, uh, health plans that are out there. And with the passage of this tax bill uh, that just got went through Washington and the removal of the individual mandate, many of these people will be choosing not to have insurance simply because they can no longer afford it. These are people that before the ACA were insured. They're eligible for insurance, but they can no longer afford insurance. So as we look to expand Medicaid, um, we need to make sure that we're providing affordable, accessible health care to all Virginians and not just to certain segments. And we're not trading off one segment for another segment of the population. I think if you look at the provider tax, um, as we look at that, people I, I hear on the campaign trail, I hear out talking, we're passing up all this free money. If this money is free, how come we have to do a provider tax? Um, and the bottom line is Medicaid expansion um, will probably cost the state somewhere in the neighborhood of $400 million. That's a cost to the state, and it's not free money come from Washington. Certainly, we can draw down money if the state invests more money, but we're having to invest another $400 million to draw down that money. That $400 million have to, has to come from somewhere. Uh, we can cut higher education. We can cut K-12. through We can cut transportation. Um, Terry McCullough decided to do a provider tax and put it on the hospital's to take and um, come up with the money to meet that $400 million that the state would have to put put forward. I think that there would be 
concern um, on the part of uh, hospitals of what what this means in moving forward. We've seen in other states that the number of people on Medicaid has gone up far more than they anticipated, and the cost of those people is far higher than they anticipated. So would our hospital systems be on tap for providing all the costs of this program, or is there some limit to the cost of those programs? These are all uncertainties. Um, Medicaid expansion is not free. It's not free money. There are real money costs to the state. And we have a lot of other people that we have to look at as well. It just can't be the Medicaid population. That's a, that's a great segue into my next question. And um, I wanted to kind of uh, redirect us to the private insurance market. You know, we've seen and we've had physicians really have major concerns with how this has um, come about over the years. But we've got insurance plans who are making record, record profits under group insurance, and they're making you know, 4 and 5% profit margins under Medicaid-managed care. And yet there's nothing that's holding them accountable in the individual market. They can jump in, they can jump out. And we've seen in other states where there's been a mandate on health plans that say, hey, if you're going to participate in one or two of these markets, you have to participate in the third bucket. What is your thought on that? And, um, you know, I think physicians for years have been kind of stayed away from engaging in, in insurance conversations. And I think now seeing that patients don't have coverage um, and, and they're, they're really realizing the ramifications of that, I think they're eager to get involved in those discussions. What's your thought on that? Yeah, I, I, I think that this is, this is part of the problem that we see when we try to get government involved in managing a market that is as complex as healthcare. Um, and one of the things that we always worry about up in, uh, in Richmond uh, when we pass legislation, you can sit down and read a bill and have somebody explain a bill to you, and it makes perfect, perfect sense. And then you sit down and you look at it again and say, you know what, if I look at this from a different perspective, I would come to a different conclusion about this bill. And it's the law of unintended consequences. Um, we pass legislation, um, and you can't look can't figure out or you can't see all the consequences that a piece of legislation may have. But I think that's the situation that we're in right now. You know, the the Affordable Care Act got passed with these various um, uh, protections for the insurance companies, um, and and many of those have gone away. Some of those haven't been funded. Um, and I think that we had unintended consequences um, or perhaps um, some intended consequences um, associated with that that bill that's led to a um, very uneven playing field. Um, it's not led to um, better access for a lot of Americans. Um, it's actually negatively impacted their ability because of these um, the government trying to figure out uh, something as complex as this as, as really um, a third party. And so I, I think we need to get back to some of the basics where we're letting Americans make decisions on their own and giving them some freedom of choice in how they take and um, select the health care um, that, they, that they choose. And when we start getting the consumer involved in these decisions, um, I think we're going to see the insurance companies far more responsive to what those individual consumers are, are needing. Um, increased regulation, more regulation, more rules, um, I don't think that's probably the solution. I think that we need to get people out there um, competing for the market. 
you are leading into my next segue. Of <laughs> Glad to help. Now, speaking of uh, government intervention uh, within the healthcare uh, market, um, you know, COPN has been a, a, a priority for the medical society. They had a work group of a variety of different physicians. They came up with what the, the physicians believe is a reasonable expectation, which says if you provide charity care, you provide um, uh, accreditation and quality standards, uh, the permitting system should be developed so folks can create ambulatory surgery centers, MRIs, imaging machines, uh, imaging centers, I should say. Um, what is your view on COPN? And I know um, uh, you play a variety of different um, roles within a hospital and a provider, and so I think your perspective is always very interesting, um, and I know the physician community would very much appreciate where you see COPN reform uh, for the future. Yeah, I um, uh, I hate COPN. I, I have not liked COPN from from the, the get-go. I'm all for reforming COPN. Um, having said that, it is very, very dangerous for us to take and look, and just like we were just talking about with the insurance companies, it's very dangerous for us to take and look at one little aspect of the market and say, if I do an intervention here, that's going to make it better for everybody. It gets back to that discussion of unintended consequences. And um, I guess it's been frustrating for me. I've certainly been one of the ones that have led the charge in the General Assembly um, in favor of reform in opposition to repeal. And so most of the bills or that we've seen have, have in one way or the other, um, gone to repeal COPN. And I guess the, the, the issue that struck me the most on this is, is um, some of the folks advocating for repeal of COPN, um, they weren't advocating for repeal of um, obstetric beds. Um, there are services that are provided that are just losers um, for the hospitals. Uh, the, they will lose money on the services. The, the big things that people are pushing for are diagnostic centers and surgery centers. And the reason for that is that's where the money is. Um, you don't have a whole bunch of advocacy groups out there going, let's uh, set up obstetrical um, uh, hospitals and rural areas. There's no money there. So it's, it's a little bit disingenuous to say um, we want to do this for a free market perspective. I think we're actually, um, both sides of this issue have very much in common, and we agree on some basic stuff. And I think one of the issues that, that – uh, um, that we've looked at with the COPN is that COPN is a tax. Um, COPN is a tax that is uh, on the communities, and it's on the um, – we set up these monopolies, which essentially gives um, hospitals uh, authority to um, ensure that they get business in a particular area. That drives up costs. That drive up of cost is a tax. The reason why we have that tax is because the state government has underfunded Medicaid for years. And so whether we're, we're 49th in the state or we're 47th in the state, we reimburse Medicaid at a rate that nobody can survive on. And so um, the deal years ago uh, was, this is, look, uh, and, and anybody who goes back and looks at the history of COPN knows that COPN was a trade-off for low Medicaid reimbursement. 
Um, we're going to reimburse Medicaid at a low rate, but in doing so, we're going to give you an area where you are protected. So now folks want to take and take away the protection without increasing the Medicaid reimbursement. We could solve this problem. We could do away with COPN if we reimburse Medicaid at a rate that is an actual cost for both the physician and for the hospitals. The hospitals wouldn't need COPN protection if the state was funding at the level that it should. Dr. Stolle, I love that idea, uh, and I think those of the physicians would love that, too. Let's increase the Medicaid reimbursement rates, and let's, uh, you know, remove COPN into a permitting system. So I can't wait for you to leave Charleston on that this year. Um, but you can't do one without the other. You, right. You've got to have the reimbursement before you take away the, the COPN. And so, you know, I think we could all get together and say, look, let's get let's get Medicaid reimbursement as as physicians, as hospital systems, let's get Medicaid reimbursement up where it's supposed to be and then provide some guarantee that it won't fall down again. Love it. Um, I'll shift us over to um, mid-level providers, and and you've been a a staunch advocate on making sure that uh, those providers who have been trained and educated in one particular field uh, don't go through the legislative process to expand whatever their scope or change their setting uh, relationship uh, with a physician uh, through the General Assembly. And we're continuing to see this nationwide, and you've seen it as well, probably um, even um, uh, within your provider community where you are, that you'll see an optometrist who wants to say, well, now I want to do injections, so I should go down to the General Assembly and expand my scope. Uh, Same thing with the nurse practitioner. Uh, who might say, well, I don't believe that I need to be part of a physician uh, patient care team. Um, we'll see many bills uh, uh, on that this coming session. Um, what is your take, and how can we continue to advocate um, um, for the physician community to make sure that uh, patient safety and quality is at the highest level? Yeah, I, I think that um, we hear a common phrase um, today that we want everybody um, practicing at the level of their license. Um, Whatever their license will allow them to do, um, we want them to be able to practice at that level because that's going to provide the most care um, to the community. And I just think that that is not only scary, um, but just a flawed um, perspective. Um, I am licensed to practice medicine and surgery in the state of Virginia. I'm an OBGYN. Under my license, I can hang up a shingle and call myself a neurosurgeon. Um, my license allows me to do that. So, but I'm not competent to do that. So, we really don't want providers practicing at the level of their license. We want we want providers practicing at the level of their competency. And I really think that that's the key in in this discussion. How do we establish that competency? And certainly for physicians. Um, we do that through board certification. Um, we do that for um, ongoing medical education. Um, but if somebody came in to, to the hospital, uh, as, as Vice President of Medical Affairs, I'm responsible for privileging and credentialing of these folks, and somebody came in and said, you know, I want privileges to do um, uh, brain surgery um, in your hospital, the first question I'm going to ask is, how were you trained? Um, what's your certification? 
what's your competency to be able to take and do those things? I don't think that right now we hold our mid-levels to the same standards of uh, competency expectation. Um, We frequently see our uh, nurse practitioners, our PAs, routinely jump from clinic to clinic. Um, You know, this year they may be in a neurosurgery clinic. Next year they may be in a GI clinic. Um, The year after that they may be in a family medicine clinic. And, And we allow that because they're functioning under a physician that is board certified in that specialty or has the education training and current competency in that specialty. Um, if there was not that connection to the physician, then you would have the um, nurse practitioners and PAs being able to jump from specialty to specialty without actual competency in those specialties. So I think the, the competency aspect, everybody assumes I'm licensed, therefore I'm competent. And those two things don't go along at all. Uh, so uh, I think that that's one of the big hurdles before we talk about any expansion of scope of practice is to explain to me if you're going to practice in a particular area, how you're going to establish and maintain competency in that area. For physicians, that's a three- to seven-year post-medical school, post-graduate training in those areas. Um, we see now that some of these um, uh, mid-level Schools are actually online schools and um, can get uh, can get some of these uh, uh, degrees online now. Um, I would be really concerned going to see a physician who got his medical degree online. Yep. Um, wow, that was uh, very insightful, and I love I love your perspective on that. Always. The last thing I'll end with is the opioid crisis. Um, the physician community is really trying to take a strong lead on this um, through regulations at the Board of Medicine uh, this past session, really per- putting in guidelines for appropriate prescribing. Uh, we've changed PMP checks uh, to seven days uh, for acute pain, post-surgical is a 14-day PMP check. Is there more that the physician community can do? We're seeing opioid uh, 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 uh Prescriptions go down. Uh, the data is proving that these things are working. Uh, PMP checks are probably, from what the data proves, going down. And, and a lot of people go, well, that's not good, but it probably means that they're prescribing uh, less two and three days of an opioid if somebody comes into the ER. What, what do you see as the next step, and is there one, or should we continue to um, really let these regulations and policy changes play out for the time being and, and kind of reevaluate in the next few years and see where we are. What's your perspective? Yeah, I, I think that um, I think certainly we've put some um, safeguards in place. Um, I think uh, physicians have taken, again, a leadership role in trying to get this um, uh, under control. I, I do think that we as a medical community need to take that next step. Um, and that the next step that we need to take is actually an advocacy role rather than any type of regulatory role. Um, my concern with restrictions on the opioids, and and uh, I, I, I think that multiple people have, have voiced these same concerns, is these folks are addicted now. Um, so for us to reduce, certainly we want to prevent um, creating any new addicts, and that's absolutely important. It's critical as we move forward. It's the only way that we're ultimately going to solve this um, this crisis. 
However, we have a bunch of people that are addicted now, and as we start to restrict uh, access to um, controlled substances, they're going to move to uncontrolled substances, and those substances, of course, are going to be heroin, and that heroin cut with um, all kinds of other things that that um, are even more dangerous. And so uh, as we look forward, as we move forward, we need to make sure that there is adequate t- treatment um, facilities um, for these individuals. Uh, right now, if I'm a... Um, if I'm a heroin addict and I'm not eligible for Medicaid, I've got virtually no treatment options available to me. Um, so we have to find ways as a state, and we as physicians need to advocate for solutions as a state that are going to increase our ability to take and treat um, folks, whether they're, they're eligible for Medicaid or not eligible for Medicaid. I think the overall cost to um, health care and the overall cost to society is going to be less if we find a way to provide um, treatment for these individuals than um, uh, if we don't. And so, uh, yeah, I think there's a next step for physicians. I think the next step for physicians is strong advocacy for um, increased treatment options for those that are already addicted. Dr. Stolle, uh, you are gracious with your time. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. The Medical Society appreciates everything that you've done uh, in the past and moving forward in the future. Can't thank you enough and uh, look forward to working with you here in the next week. Rawson, it's, uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.